Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash Burnett. Hello and welcome back to Berlin Side Out, the foreign affairs podcast in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations that takes a look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. I'm Aaron Gash Burnett, a journalist specializing in German politics, and I'm here once again after what we hope was a fun and rejuvenating Christmas and holiday break for everyone with my friend and co-host, Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the Council. Ben, Happy New Year and welcome back to the mic. Happy New Year, Aaron, and to all our listeners, it's good to be back. I know we're both excited to be back, especially because this, our first episode of 2024, hits close to home for both of us. We're talking about Germany's relationship with a country that we both love and know well, and which indeed I actually come from. And you, Aaron, you've actually lived there. It's where your partner's from. And that's right. This week, we're talking about the UK. Now, Ben, the German relationship with the UK has had a big change in tone over the last few years. Um, but as we'll hear from this week over our two-part episode, it's not all it could be, is it? No, Aaron, it's not. And that's a profound disappointment for personal reasons, I'm sure, for both you and I. I mean, and for me, it's where I grew up and I, I still have lots of ties there. I follow UK politics and foreign policy very closely. And Germany's where I live and a country I care about deeply and want to be the best it can be. And wanting both countries to thrive and each having so much to offer, as well as a fair amount of natural admiration and affection for each other, alongside certain other feelings, it must be admitted, it's a shame to see neither really taking advantage of this, not making that friendship into all it could be. And that's a theme we've discussed on Berlin Side Out and we'll continue to look at also over the next few weeks as we look at some of Germany's key relationships with its key allies. But it's also a disappointment And more than that, it's a severe concern because getting that relationship between the UK and Germany right would be such a boost for European security. And that's something right now that we need to urgently improve. Although neither country seems to have truly grasped that, uh, or at least their governments are not acting like they have. I've just come back from the SNOW meeting, the high-level security conference in Vilnius, where the urgency and severity of our current situation was being made very clear by almost all the participants most of whom also made their clear frustration or made clear their frustration at the commensurate lack of action from Western European governments and in, also from the US. And the key here is, is Ukraine and what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. The title of the panel I was on there, and I waived my, my own Chatham House rules uh, privilege to, to tell you about this, was that failure is not an option. The strategic necessity of Ukraine's victory for the West But for most Western countries, including Germany, and I would say the UK, we don't seem to have actually internalized that strategic necessity. It's strange because the UK under Boris Johnson, for, who for all his other faults very clearly saw why Ukraine needed to win, they did pursue a policy like that, and a policy that, as we'll talk about later, took several leading steps. But it now seems to have slipped back under Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. So... While most of the strategic and security analysts, experts I know, as well as politicians from across the Nordic countries, Baltic states and Central Eastern Europe, would indeed agree that failure is indeed not an option, unfortunately at the moment we're making failure into a very real possibility. And that's to our great cost. I'll come back to that question in a second about what the cost to us of 
failure. But let's be clear, first of all, what we mean by failure, which means talking about what success would actually look like. Success in this situation, I think, implies some basic things. First, that Ukraine wins the war. And that means getting back control over its 1991 borders, liberating all of its territory, but more importantly, the people who live on that territory. But it doesn't end there. We need a stable security order in Europe, a security architecture that includes Ukraine and deters, but is also capable of defending against Russia. As long as NATO exists in the way that it does today, that means getting Ukraine into NATO. And it means Ukraine on track for a rapid, if staged, accession to the EU. More broadly, we need a Europe that is indeed able to defend itself, having woken up to the threats we face, and is equipped to do so with the capabilities, but also the mindset, the industrial processes, the societal mobilization, and the arguments to take our societies with us. And it also requires us to have a credible, positive vision for the future as part of a strengthened community of liberal democracies that can engage in the kind of ordering on a regional and global level that can make sure that we have a world that's not only safe for democracy, but a world in which free societies can thrive. And unfortunately, on all those counts at the moment, the consensus in Vilnius and elsewhere is that we are failing. This poses a great risk to us. It's not one that we cannot address yet. We still have time to get this right in Ukraine, which would actually prevent a lot of these uh, immediate negative effects and prevent us from going down those negative paths and give us the platform that we need to actually succeed on all those terms. This is bad at the moment, but in light of what might come with Donald Trump, we if we can't rely on the US security guarantee, then that situation for Europeans becomes an awful lot worse. And it's that uh, that I would like to use to take us into our discussion on the UK-Germany relationship today. Because looking at what the UK and Germany are doing versus what they need to be doing, Aaron, it's not such a good picture, is it? No, I wouldn't say at the moment. I mean, we've also made this point when we discussed, uh, just before Christmas, when we discussed the German relationship with France. Um, the UK is a very similarly important security partner as uh, France is with Germany. This is a very important relationship to get right, especially uh, if uh, we are talking about, as you uh, pointed out just now, the possibility of another uh, term of Donald Trump in the White House. And uh, we're not having nearly the kinds of um, discussions that we need to be having with either the French or the British here in Germany uh, to be able to prepare for that eventuality. And I don't think that the risk has been appropriately appreciated either, which you've um, started uh, highlighting here. Now, uh, Ben, when it comes to Ukraine in particular, which really is the um, geopolitical moment um, to get right uh, at the moment, especially in Europe, uh, both Germany and the UK have made certain arguments about their level of support for Ukraine. Uh, with British politicians, I think with uh, justification, at least on this particular point, uh, pointing out that the UK has delivered weapons to Ukraine quickly and decisively when it matters, when it counts. Uh, it was a country that was delivering weapons to Ukraine before February 2022. Uh, you just made the point about uh, Boris Johnson, um, for all his other points, actually being able to get Ukraine right and being able to anticipate that Putin might actually invade and actually delivering those weapons ahead of time, uh, while Germany was actually still in the middle of insisting it wouldn't send weapons and it would ship 5,000 helmets instead, while Johnson was, in fact, acting and making those deliveries. Um, the UK is already delivering storm shadow missiles, uh, while we in Germany endlessly debate Taurus and the Chancellor's office won't budge, despite clear parliamentary support, something that we also 
discussed um, in our episode uh, interviewing uh, Deputy Prime Minister Olga Stefanishna. Uh, German politicians, and you'll hear this too from one of our guests this week, Dr. Jens Zimmermann, who chairs the German-British Friendship Group in the Bundestag, will argue that Germany remains second only to the U.S., in terms of the absolute amount that it's spending and delivering to support Ukraine and that British aid is falling by comparison. Uh, But I think both of these arguments miss a key point. We recently saw Kiel Institute numbers on the share of GDP that Ukraine's Western friends are giving for support. Uh, Lithuania, Estonia, and Norway are the top three countries by that measure. Each of them is devoting at least 1.7% of their GDP to supporting Ukraine. Uh, The U.S. is first in absolute terms, but they're on 0.33%. Neither Germany or the U.K. make the top 10 in that particular metric. That's 0.99% for Germany and 0.49% for the U.K. So, Ben, it sounds to me like both Germany and the U.K. could learn something from each other here in terms of timeliness of delivery and in terms of wrapping up deliveries, but neither one of them really should be getting too comfortable, I think. What do you think on that question? Yeah, I agree. I mean, German politicians are very keen to point to the fact they've doubled their uh, contribution to Ukraine military aid in the coming year from 4 billion to 8 billion euros. Uh, while the UK, we've just seen Rishi Sunak uh, this this last week, pledged 2.5 billion pounds for the UK's military support for the coming year. And there's, there's a big difference there, clearly. And as you rightly pointed to, the, the difference in absolute terms for both Germany's is double the UK in terms of uh, the, sorry, relative terms of its GDP of its um, contribution to Ukraine. But I think overall, we get something badly wrong here. Too many Europeans at the moment are pointed to what they've done. And the German government is very guilty of this in public, saying, look how much we've done. Instead, they should be looking at what we need to do and how we actually get that done. That should be the metric we're using. And on that, we are all failing at the moment. And this is what we really have to address. So taking a bit of that British spirit from the the first days of the war to deliver the higher class of weapons, deliver it quickly and deliver it when it's needed to send a signal to others to up their game as well. And to deliver the kind of weapons that are needed to win, not just, for example, air defense, which is very useful, but will never win you a war. That could be learned by others, including Germany. What the UK could learn is to increase its absolute contribution, certainly. And We're all going to have to do that if we're actually going to get this right and get us off the track to failure and on to the road to success. Nonetheless, there's some quite considerable obstacles to that, which we'll hear about more from our guests in just a second. However, what I think it's really important to remember is that this shouldn't be some kind of contest between the different countries involved. This is something we have to approach as a team and actually work together as a team, working out what we can each best do. And that's something that Edward Stringer is going to talk about in the second of our UK episodes later this week. But also just we need to find those those other ways that we can actually support each other. We can do what we're good at and praise the others for doing what they're good at while helping them overcome their weaknesses rather than pointing to them to make ourselves feel better. This is what team power is. That's what it's about. So let's hear a bit more about how Germany and the UK could work better as a team, but also what the obstacles to that are. Let's listen in. To help us get into these themes today, we'd like to give a big Berlin side out welcome to our guests, all joining us on the line from London. Uh, first up, we have Sir David Liddington, a former Deputy Prime Minister and Europe Minister in the UK, in addition to the many cabinet positions he's held. Uh, he also chairs the Conservative Group for Europe, the Royal United Services Institute, and the Königswinter Conference, which was set up in the 1950s and is dedicated to the relationship between Germany and the UK. 
Next up, welcome to, to Annette Dittert. She is a senior foreign correspondent for German public broadcaster AAD and has been covering the UK since 2008. Before that, she had stints in both Warsaw and New York. And finally, with us today, too, is Anand Manon. He is the director of UK in a Changing Europe and also professor of European politics and foreign affairs at my alma mater, King's College London. Welcome to the show, everyone. Uh, let's start with the UK-German relationship uh, and where it is now after a few years that felt like a roller coaster. Uh, certainly from my standpoint, I'm sure Ben has something to add here too. And we are not, by the way, talking about the partnerships that we have in our own households with our respective British and German partners. Uh, I think back myself to being a German-Canadian who was living in London when Article 50 was triggered and the disbelief, even suspicion and mistrust that was so prevalent in German discussions around the UK at that time. Uh, you know, how could a country we thought so highly of leave the European family that is so important to us? Uh, now, though, Ukraine seems to have reminded us that, broadly speaking, we're still on the same team here. Uh, but I think we're still working out where exactly we, we go with that relationship. So what is your read on where the German-UK relationship is now, and where do we go from here? I think that it's in a much better place than it looked like being um, a couple of years back. And there's no getting away from the fact that the decision by David Cameron to hold the referendum and then the outcome of the referendum and the bitterness of the subsequent negotiations um, have um, left relationships with Germany very bruised indeed. And I, I think that some of this is, I think, just, just a, a German sort of incomprehension that the British people and British political leadership could do something that in Berlin was seen as so self-evidently foolish um, and, and, and such a self-inflicted wound. And, and I mean, though I, that's a, an approach I, I happen to share personally, um, I, I, I think that um, you know, the... the, the it, Conversations I've had and gatherings I've had in in the years since the referendum with Germans, there's been this sense of how could you do it? There's this, this sort of grief um, coupled with resentment at the decision that's taken. Since the Windsor framework, I think that things have improved hugely. I think the, the departure of Boris Johnson from the front line of British politics has certainly helped. Um, Rishi Sunak, though he supported leaving the EU, is somebody who sees no difficulty in wanting the EU to be a success in wanting to work closely with uh, the EU and its member states. And, and certainly what I've heard since Windsor is that this opens the way for uh, a different kind, more positive relationship in the future. I mean, I pretty much agree with uh, David. I mean, that sense of incomprehension. I remember in, in about uh, 2018, I went over to Berlin I was asked to go and do a briefing at the Chancellor Amt for their Brexit team about the state of the UK and what was going on. I remember I was talking about how the government was approaching the Brexit negotiations. At one point, this young German civil servant sort of threw her hands up and said, but this is not rational. Uh, it was a moment that sort of summed up the whole thing because I said, well, no, but it's politics. And that's that's what's going on here. So I think... You know, there was that incomprehension. I think we have come out of the worst of that with the Windsor framework and the successful completion of the negotiations over the TCA. My concern is that Germany, along with most other member states, actually they just don't think about us very much anymore. That is to say, whilst 
you know, we've overcome quite a lot of the mutual distrust and hostility that marked the Brexit negotiations. We are no longer uh, discussed, talked about, thought about uh, in European circles, partly because European states have got so many other pressing things to be getting on with. So, yes, it's we're on a firmer footing than we were, but I'm not sure that necessarily means that the relationship is necessarily going to be as close as it was, because being outside relegates us to a different status. Well, Aneta, if I can come to you, you're certainly someone who tries to keep Britain in the news in Germany. Um, what's your take on how well that's being received, and, and particularly perhaps in security terms, because that's when, when I speak to people in Berlin, when the Brits tend to come up, it's in relation to security issues. And Ukraine has certainly um, amplified that effect. What's your read? I basically agree with Anand uh, on that. The interest in Germany in general has become rather low. I mean, I, I notice that on a day-to-day basis that it's really hard to sell stories from Britain uh, recently. I mean, we had the whole circus around the Rwanda bill. And when I called the desk, people were just yawning and said, okay, well, not really. <laughs> so this has become um, an issue a little bit, I think, because um, this waning interest in Germany isn't good for the uh, mutual relations and won't be good even if Labour comes into power, if and when, we'll see. And when it comes to security and defence um, partnership, I mean, on the operational level between the civil service collaboration and cooperation is working rather well from all I hear. David will probably agree there, David Liddington. But um, overall, I mean, Germany sees as well that UK leadership on Ukraine is flagging. I mean, when it comes to material and military and financial aid, I mean, there was no clear mention of it in the autumn budget of how many how much money uh, and how much support Britain will give towards Britain. Germany has just committed to another $8 billion and is still waiting for Britain to, to come up with that. And apart from facts and deeds and money, I mean, you don't hear uh, the new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak uh, talk a lot about Ukraine, other than Boris Johnson, who celebrated his friendship for his own reasons, obviously, with Zelensky, um, Sunak isn't isn't doing much foreign policy in general. I mean, you have David Cameron, the new foreign secretary, he brought back into into his cabinet, whom he seems to he seems to leave foreign policy basically to him now. And um, it's it's not when you when you listen to radio or read the papers here uh, or watch the BBC. I mean, Ukraine is still a, a topic, but it has really uh, gone into the background a bit. So I think uh, Germany is a bit worried about that as well. David, coming over to you on that, is UK support for Ukraine flagging? Is that then that avenue of enhanced cooperation between the UK and Germany likely to be a fruitful one in the future? Or is it going to be just another source of strife? I don't think it's flagged. I think one of David Cameron's first visits um, overseas after becoming Foreign Secretary was to Kiev. Um, and knowing David as I, as I do, um, he was... Out. He was the first Western leader to go to Tbilisi after the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008. Um, it went round the front line with then President Saakashvili. So he's somebody who feels very deeply about the threat from Russian aggression, who having been prime minister, having had you know, six years you know, reading all the intelligence material then, you know, is well aware of the threat Putin poses. I think we're uh, I, I would criticise the, the British government approach, but I think this is common right across Europe, um, is um, a failure to um, really upgrade 
our defence industrial capability to meet the new challenges. It's clear that the depletion rates of ammunition, missiles, rockets um, expended in Ukraine daily far exceed the planning assumptions that uh, Western Europeans uh, and, and others have made uh, about the, our, our defence capabilities. And we need to do something about that. Now, to me, that says we have to find ways uh, as uh, European allies of working more closely together on this, because it would be absolutely crazy if Britain, France, Germany each were trying to do their own thing. And that is going to require, I think, some very serious strategic discussions in the years ahead. But frankly, any idea of a European security or defence pillar or entity of any kind that does not include both the UK and France is just a bit of paper. It's, it's not going to amount to anything in, in practice. And, and Germany, I think I welcome, you know, very much welcomes Eichmander, um, you know, as the, the head of the Bundeswehr is saying, you know, Germany's got a long way to go before they can be confident in the, the actual ability of their own armed forces to deliver the level of defence that, that would be expected. We'd certainly agree in welcoming the Titan vendor when it happens or when it's actually, uh, when it's done to the extent that it was promised indeed. And that's that's what we work on here, here at the DJP, of course. When it comes to investing more in defence capability and being more responsible for our own defence in Europe, and I think there's a lot uh, to discuss um, uh, around that. Uh, we often talk about the gap between rhetoric and action in Germany. That's certainly something that we've discussed a lot, um, Ben, on this podcast. But uh, isn't this also true to some extent of the UK? I mean, there might be a bigger willingness to act in the UK during a security crisis than uh, there is in Germany, where we do see a lot of uh, foot dragging, um, you know, the, the difference in between storm shadow deliveries and tourist deliveries for missiles are, is one big example at the moment. But are the capabilities there to to match that rhetoric? I mean, also in the UK and, and not simply just in, in, in Germany. Well, the UK, UK defense money has has gone up in the last couple of years. But you're quite right to to say that the, the threat we now face from Russia coupled with the need to adjust our defence capabilities to take account of the, the new domains, of the, the risks of cyber attacks, the risks of uh, space conflict and uh, attempts to knock out satellite systems are key to our way of life. Um, those require further expenditure. And I mean, the UK, like other Western democracies, is... Uh, having to face up to those demands at a time when uh, our economy is, is not generating sufficient growth uh, to fund that without some very painful choices being made about relative priorities in expenditure. And if, if in, yes, in the UK, the, the biggest items of uh, public expenditure are on pensions, on health uh, and on welfare benefits, um, you can see immediately why these decisions are paid. If you're going to if you're going to make savings from anything like that, or you're going to try and put up taxes, then um, you will get a kickback. We're in an election year at the moment, so that that's an obvious sort of political disincentive to anybody to take a step forward. But I really do think that European leaders have to wake up collectively to the gravity of the threat that we face. It's certainly my view. If Putin were to win in Ukraine, that uh, he's not going to stop there, and other potential aggressors around the world would take heart from that uh, success. Um, but this does mean, I think, all the, particularly the major European members of NATO, 
rethinking whether we need to try to do everything. I mean, there's this tension between the wish to have sovereign uh, capability that could defend your country in extremis and the affordability of up-to-date capability in terms of every possible defence asset and system that you might want to have available. It may be the UK needs to say, right, we specialise in certain naval and amphibious capabilities. We've spent all the money on the, the aircraft carriers. We'll make use of those. Um, or special forces. We've got a capability. We've got, we're building up a very effective cyber capability. Um, you know, do we need to do everything? And how can we find ways for European defence industries to collaborate more effectively together um, and at the same time overcome some of the um, sort of ESG hang-ups about um, defence exports as, 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 as well, because those exports are necessary to make European defence industries viable. Indeed, although there's, of course, live questions about who we export to and what the what the issues, the ethical issues and moral issues and values-based foreign policy issues involved with that would be. And we've seen that with the German blocking of the sale of the Eurofighter to the Saudis, for example, something that's the Green Party here we are very, um, very pleased to have done. Annette, I'd like to come to you on this question of prioritization and savings that David mentioned. That's something that's a big question in Germany as well at the moment with the manufactured budget crisis. And if we're talking about things that seem highly irrational to outsiders, that would certainly be one. Germany's uh, self-imposed uh, debt break, which is limiting its ability to act. The thing is, when I was saying UK leadership on Ukraine is flagging, I didn't mean that the support is flagging in general. I just do think that other than uh, with Boris Johnson, now with uh, Rishi Sunak, we don't have a prime minister who can raise awareness and and explain and make it clear to the public as Johnson could. I mean, you have to give that to him, how important it is that the West is supporting Ukraine. And when it comes to material, financial and military aid, um, the UK's budget is is just not there. It comes down to financial constraints. And, and uh, if you look at the famous Ukraine support tracker of the Keeler Institute for World Economy, Britain is lagging behind and comes behind Germany. And so far, correct me if I'm wrong, um, the uh, 2.3 billion of UK military funding that runs out in March uh, hasn't been announced yet uh, for next year by Sunak. So that's that's one thing. The other side you were just uh, referring to, Benjamin, is the, is the problem in Germany. I mean, Germany, the self-imposed debt break is 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 something I think hugely self-harming, and I I personally think that the way Scholz has been dithering and delaying his commitment, not so much. That's the other way around, if you want. I mean, uh, the way he has not full-heartedly, wholeheartedly committed to supporting Ukraine has con has sort of created a lot of confusion in uh, within the German public, I think, and has been very detrimental. Um, because if you have a leader who doesn't fully commit to supporting Ukraine, at the same time hands out so much money, it's sort of a yeah double bind message that that has been back has backfired. I personally think. And uh, as as good as it is, in my opinion, that he now has released another eight billion, and they seem to sort out the budget in a way that doesn't affect support for Ukraine at the moment. Uh, as bad, I think, has the whole communication um, and the whole the way he's been selling this policy to the German audience been, from what I can see from here. So that's something I I keep being worried about because um, the support for support uh, the public support for uh, helping ukraine in germany is way less 
clear than when I talk to people here in Britain. Right. And indeed, just just picking up directly on that, because there was no doubt that for all his other faults with Boris Johnson, there was no doubt he wanted the Ukrainians to win and was committing Britain to put them in as good a position to do so as possible. Olaf Scholz has refused to say that. He still hasn't said it. We wrote a piece six months ago on this, and he still won't say Ukraine should win. So there is that ambiguity. But Anand, on that, again, that rhetoric versus reality gap, I mean, rhetoric was a very strong part of global Britain, but um, why has that slogan been ditched? And was there ever the substance to back it up? I'm not sure why they ditched it, to be honest. But in terms of uh, whether there was action to back it up, I think, yes, to an extent. I think the period since the referendum has seen British diplomacy be slightly hyperactive and there was a political reason for that and the political reason for that was a desire to make it clear that Brexit didn't mean the UK turning in on itself. So I think there was a deliberate decision taken by government since 2016 to be more active internationally than we had been. I mean essentially since the Syria vote uh, UK foreign policy had been largely absent. We didn't do much in the sort of last few years of David Cameron's government. So I think we've done more. Actually, a nice parallel there, I think, is with the French in 1966, when the French left NATO. It was followed by a year or two of real diplomatic activism by the French intended to persuade their allies that they were still there, they were still present, and that this decision didn't mean a turning their back on the West. So I think there was something similar to that. Uh, have there been resource constraints? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I would add to what David was saying. I mean, you know, our second biggest departmental uh, spend next year is going to be debt interest payments. Uh, you know, and the only reason that the Chancellor managed to meet his fiscal rule in the autumn statement was essentially by penciling in a set of public sector spending cuts that, well, A, aren't going to happen because they're politically unrealistic, but it just points to how tight public spending is going to be in the years ahead. Now, I mean, David was talking about the need to sort of do things together. I mean, what I would say about that, I think a couple of things. I mean, firstly, pooling and sharing is a great idea in principle, though as we realised within the European Union, when we were still members, it's far harder in practice than it is in principle. Uh, but secondly, here, I think one of the issues that bothers me about the future of not just the UK-German relationship, but the UK-EU relationship, is that whilst both sides seem at least rhetorically committed to being very close allies politically, uh, the approach followed by the European Union when it comes to the economic side of security has been far more restrictive and mercantilist. So if you look at the way in which the European Defence Fund has been set up, it makes it very hard for third country firms to participate. If you look at the way the UK is excluded from the ammunition scheme for Ukraine, I think there is a tension between a slightly mercantilist and protectionist approach to the economics and a desire to work together closely as allies. And those two, I think, pull in slightly opposite directions. Let's ask a little bit more about uh, that concretely. So um, it, I've always found this expression myself, global Britain, to be a strange one, um, because EU members tend to uh, it become more global through their membership of the EU, not in spite of it. So, it, you know, it's always felt, at least in, in Germany and outside of, of the UK, it's an empty phrase. Um, but uh, David, you actually made this argument um, earlier this year that Britain couldn't be global 
without those um, relationships with Europe. It was an article of yours in Conservative Home. Uh, and also that bilateral relations weren't enough. Um, and you argued for a sort of security relationship that the UK could develop um, uh, with Europe. But uh, the reality is, is that bilateral relations are an important part of developing that relationship with Europe as a whole, particularly the one between the UK and Germany. So where does Germany fit into um, the relationship that the UK um, needs to have uh, with also Europe as a whole? Um, I, I'll come to you concretely. Yeah, I mean, I think just the Global Britain slogan, I think, was deliberately coined to try to contrast with the idea of, of a supposedly European Britain um, that, that, that they, they wish to, to, to say the, the province of the old world and you know, post-Brexit, that this was the, the brand new buccaneering um, country out of the world again. So I, I, I think that that was very much a Boris Johnson um, sort of phrase. I don't think there was great affection for it in the diplomatic service. Um, the I think the we're looking forward. I mean, I think Germany is both an important um, to bilateral and including NATO ally. You know, the the E three um, kept going as an important source of contact and coordination between Britain, France, and Germany. Uh, at the political director level, usually all the way through the worst of the Brexit negotiations. Um, I know we in Germany still sit uh, alongside each other when we talk about the Iranian nuclear deal. And so that, that E3 configuration remains important as does the NATO relationship. But also Germany is a key member of the EU. And, and I, I'm firm with the view that um, we have to work towards a uh, not not rejoining. I think that that's that'll be a matter for my children's generation to decide if they want to do that, depending on what the UK and the EU look like. But a a much more um, fruitful, close strategic partnership between the UK and the European Union, um, and security is going to be, I think, a very significant element of that. Partly because of what we're seeing in Russia, partly because you know the UK continues to have a, an interest um, in places like the Western Balkans. Um, but also because of the risks that we, we face of the United States um, to diluting uh, at best its commitment to European security um, and at worst, you know, actually abandoning its central role in NATO altogether. Um, and I think that it's only if Keir Starmer gets in at the next British general election. I'm very clear from my conversation with senior Labour figures that they intend to make a major pitch to member states and to Brussels on a security and defence partnership, which would include um, cooperative partnership in defence industries, as well as um, collaboration in things like military planning, sharing of geopolitical strategies and, 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 and so on. I think if Rishi Sunak against the odds gets back, then his authority of the Conservative Party will be so strengthened that I think you will see a much more pragmatic policy pursued then. But I, I think, being realistic, um, less um, sort of quickly uh, or enthusiastically than I think Starmer will set out to do it. It'll be an interesting test for UK-German relations, if, if there is a, an incoming Labour government next year, as to whether Starmer's uh, approach to rebuilding relationships with Germany and with the EU more generally is welcomed or whether actually we still have a quite legalistic uh, approach, particularly from the, the Commission, 
Um, in which case you start getting stories running in the UK about you know, Starmer being spurned by Europeans. I think so there could be quite a big moment next, almost whoever wins the election, certainly Starmer comes in, as to how the EU will respond to what I'm, I'm pretty, well, I'm absolutely certain is going to be quite a vigorous push by the Labour Party to uh, improve relationships. Yes, indeed. And, and Annetta, let's come to you on this, because is that something that would actually go down well in Germany? Is this something Germany is looking for? Do Germans want more to do with the Brits? I mean, Germany is traditionally and historically and famously um, yeah, Anglophile. I mean, they love Britain still a lot, um, even after Brexit. I mean, there has been this grievance period, but that's, uh, of course, this would be welcomed by Germany. But as, as David just touched on already, this will not be decided by Germany at all. I mean, this will be decided in Brussels, and this is not a bilateral issue. And I think um, sometimes when I when I listen to Starmer or David Lemmy, I'm a bit worried whether they really have understood that, or whether Britain isn't in for a big disappointment uh, once Starmer will be at the helm, which is at the moment looks very likely. Um, we don't know yet, of course, but um, I mean the um, polls are, are quite clear that we will have a Labour government whenever next year, and I think it will be a difficult road for him, um, a difficult time for him to to reestablish a closer relationship with the EU because Brussels really does have other problems at the moment than to even consider or think about taking Britain back, um, especially as, as they are struggling with Hungary at the moment. Um, the last thing Brussels would want is to consider a yeah, Britain rejoining when they have to fear that the Tories are still lingering in the background, wanting out again. Um, so I think Starmer has to be very careful and can only do small steps. Of course, when it comes to defense and security, any kind of approach to do a more common um, operation would be more than welcome because, I mean, resources are lacking everywhere. But how much money will he have at all? I mean, it looks at the moment as if um, the budget or the yeah the, the financial situation a new government will take over next year is more than dire, really. So... I think um, Germany would welcome any kind of uh, Britain stepping closer for sure, but this is nothing for Germany alone to decide, and it will be a difficult, slow path, especially within the first uh, yeah f- f- couple of years. Very interesting. So yes, we, we like the pageantry, we like King Charles coming to address the Bundestag and even mentioning Kraftwerk in his speech there, but when it comes to substantive cooperation, don't ask us. Don't ask us, ask Brussels. From my point of view, sitting in Berlin, there is a lot you can drive bilaterally. But Anand, where is the scope for doing more? Well, I mean, the UK has so signed uh, memorandums of understanding and declarations with virtually all member states now. So there are avenues that can be pursued in terms of bilateral cooperation. And of course, if you think about the UK-French relationship, that is a very, very strong defence relationship. So there are security things you can do bilaterally. Uh, But yeah, I mean, the key to the economics of security is the European Union. And here I think, you know, the EU has to decide what it means by strategic autonomy. How open is strategic autonomy? And I think at the moment it is very, very closed. Uh, The other thing I would say is, I mean, I know Labour go on about signing a security treaty with the European Union. I've never quite got my head around what difference that will make. So I put that question another way. It seems to me that UK-EU cooperation over Ukraine has functioned pretty well, whether it's a matter of sanctions or broader geopolitics. What part of that relationship would have functioned better if we had a formal 
security relationship. And, and, and here again, I mean, one of the issues is this insistence that you sometimes hear from Brussels that the UK is, in quotes, a third country like any other. I remember being in Brussels in 2018 when Michel Barnier did a, an event with uh, Mogherini and they were talking about the security implications of Brexit. In the first 10 minutes, they both went on about what a special, unique ally the UK was and how close we are and how all our security interests we have in common and all this sort of stuff. Then after about 10 minutes, like someone had flicked a switch, Barnier said, but of course, after Brexit, you will be a third country like any other. And the point is, when it comes to security, we're not a third country like any other. We're a third country pretty much unlike any other. Uh, And so, you know, it's very nice that Keir Starmer and David Lammy think they're going to negotiate a security treaty with the European Union. I remain to be convinced that it's going to be anything that offers much more. And this isn't to downplay this, than regular institutionalised meetings. Because one of the things I've come to realise in the last 12 months or so is that, you know, whatever its economic impacts, the trade and cooperation agreement hasn't institutionalised high-level political meetings between the UK and the EU. So one of the weird things is the UK, the EU-China relationship has institutionalised heads of state summits. The UK, uh, the, the EU-UK relationship hasn't. So actually, any, I suppose anything that brings our officials and our political leaders together more frequently would be a good thing. But in operational terms, I'm still to be convinced there's much to be had from a security, a formalised security partnership. Well, David, let's give you a chance to respond to that because you have actually written in favor of this. But one of the things that comes to my mind, at least when thinking this through, is that not all the member states of the EU think in the same way as Mogherini and Barnier that we just heard then. The Central East Europeans would be delighted to have such an arrangement, wouldn't they? That's undoubtedly the case. You talk the Scandinavians, the Baltics, um, the Romanians, um, uh, the Poles, it'll be interesting to see whether there's a shift in Polish policy now. Donald Tusk and uh, Bradek Sikorski are, are, are back in harness. Um, have all said you know, the UK is an absolutely key partner in, in, in this. And in fairness, you know, that, you know, Britain and France have squabbling for centuries. But Macron, um, I think, while wanting to keep us um, uh, a bit at a distance economically, you know, is, is, is very much in favour of finding away institutionally of involved with the UK. I think I think it's I think it's it's more than Anand points out, but I, I don't think that um even you know institutionalizing regular meetings is something just to be dismissed as insignificant because what those contacts do, if they're substantive discussions, then that shapes mutual understanding and agreed um mutual collaborative solutions. To problems, and certainly, I, I, my impression is that Labour in the UK is looking at things like um, you know, you know, attendance at as uh, non-voting sort of participation in Foreign Affairs Council meetings more frequently than once a year. You know, with the the, the, the summit the Chinese, that's no no bad thing. I I suspect it's a bit of Brussels and a bit of London that's that's actually stopped that happening uh, so far since Brexit, but. Uh, and, it, and it should be <laughs> put it put in place as soon as possible. But the uh, in terms of a foreign and security policy relationship, it seems it's a win win to me. It's a win win for all sides. Um, that actually, if we don't find a way of working more closely together, then um, we're weakening our collective uh, security in the face of Russian subversion and aggression, and we are going to be less effective in responding to what will be the demands from Washington, whether it's Biden, uh, 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 not just Trump, that Europe does more. 
not just in terms of uh, increasing its spending, but exercising greater political leadership. I'd have thought that when certainly with the Western Balkans, but also when it comes to Africa, Washington is very much going to say, well, that's your neighbourhood. You deal with those those problems. It's not going to be something where we want to take a lead. Yes, and we'll come on to the question of the US and the relationship between Britain, Germany, the EU and the US in just a second. Um, but this this question of change is certainly there uh, from how much is the EU changing, how much is the UK changing. But Aaron, we've also had a lot of talk about German change, haven't we, with our focus on the Titan vendor? Well, yeah, that is the big question. Is Titan vendor happening? Is it not? In what ways is it happening? And is it not? Is it something that happens um, is purely limited to defense? Or do we see it in other uh, mindsets uh, that change in Germany? Certainly, that's something that we talk about a lot um, in opinions that have changed in the German public around defense spending, around the relationship Germany should have with Russia, with Ukraine, all of those sorts of things. Um, But Aneta, I'd like to come to you on this because you wrote a piece for uh, the New Statesman um, shortly after Olaf Scholz's Seitenbender speech. Um, the big one on February 27th, a few um, days after Russia's reinvasion of Ukraine, about why the UK specifically needed to support Germany's Zeitenwende. So can you take us through your thoughts around that, about the ideas you discussed in the piece, and also why you felt it necessary to write it and to make that particular argument? Yeah, I mean, that was at the very beginning when Zeitenwende was just announced and everybody was really yeah, enthusiast or enthused at, at first sight. And then everybody started, I mean, understandably getting a bit disappointed because not, not much happened. And it wasn't very clear how this should be practically really sort of done. And um, that's when I thought it was important to explain, especially to Britain at the time or to very British uh, readers, um, that Germany will need some time to understand this Zeitenwende really because it's not just... Uh, yeah, not just sort of more money for defense, but it, it's a whole mental and cultural change that needs to take place. And we've seen that over the last, I mean, this piece is like one, two years old. We've seen that over the last years, how difficult it is for, for Germans who have sort of defined themselves as pacifists, which was a very convenient and slightly complacent way of dealing with its own economy without having to spend so much for defense and security. Uh, but it has taken a long time to really realize in what what kind of a precarious situation we are with the US potentially um, not supporting Europe the way it did uh, before. And um, that's why I thought, especially like, yeah, these when I wrote this article one, two years ago, uh, when Britain was still quite enthusiastic about supporting Ukraine, it was really understandably angry that Germany was lagging behind here to to get the British uh, yeah my British audience here in this country to understand that Germany will will need time to really implement this Zeitenwende. I wouldn't write that now anymore because I think uh, Scholz has lost a lot of time and it, I mean they haven't really um, stepped up to what what he's uh, he claimed at the time for all kind of reasons Aaron might uh, know better than me. Um, but I think overall, as I said in the beginning, although Scholz has been doing a lot and this coalition government has been supporting Ukraine and is still quite closely at its side, much more than it looked like the way it was communicated has been very detrimental, I think. And um, that's why I would now rather say kick them <laughs> somewhere than understand this. I think uh, it's time now to 
to keep to, to to get clearer. I mean, Schultz has done that in his speech. I think yesterday or two days ago. Um, occasionally, he steps up to that, but overall, I find his um, half-heartedly his, his the way he's supporting Ukraine basically a bit half-heartedly when it comes to his public um, speeches a bit a bit weak and and not very helpful. Yeah, indeed. I mean, kick, kick them somewhere. Suggestions, <laughs> listeners, uh, via Twitter, very welcome as to, to what and where it should be done to whom. Um, we but won't no, seriously, say exactly what. <laughs> thanks, thanks for that. Um, indeed, this this is an analysis we we share as well. But this this question applies to all all Europeans and to to the UK as well. Um, Anand, first to you, and then to David. Because of the uncertainty about the US, but also because of the gravity of the threat that we face in the East from Russia and the rising systemic uh, global competition, there might be change. But is it going fast enough and far enough? Are we doing enough? I mean, Germany's not moving at the speed of shame anymore, but it's still not moving at the speed of need, is it? And is, is the UK? Anand, to you. No, none of us are. I think, you know, we're starting to talk about the potential implications of a Trump presidency. We're nowhere near being prepared. And I see no prospect for us being prepared, to be quite honest. I mean, if, you know, Trump wins the election and on, on day one turns the tap off for Ukraine, are we in a position to step in and take over? No, absolutely not. We've spent, well, we've spent most of my career discussing the need for Europeans to do more for themselves in the area of defence. And... We've reached the stage now where I can look back and say, if we'd done something back then at the start, then we might be in a position to do more now. But no, there, there are lead times for all of this. So I think, you know, Europe is still, I think, guilty of being a free rider. Uh, and I'm sometimes appalled by the way simply talking a better game is seen as somehow a, a mark of progress. Yes, Anand. I mean, you, you and I had a conversation along those lines 20 years ago when I was a master's student and you were, you were a professor already at that stage. And I, I remember it well to this day. But um, David, coulda, woulda, shoulda is never a good political argument. So given we are where we are rather than where we'd like to be, what should we do? We need to do two things. We do need to redouble our efforts to persuade the United States. And that means not just the, the current and potential administrations, but also Congress, um, that it is still an essential American national interest to remain committed to the defence of Europe. And it's making that connection with American self-interest that, that we, we, we sometimes fail to do. And part of that has to involve Europe demonstrating to American decision makers that we are taking much greater share of responsibility for our own future. Second, in order to do that, I think that we have to move forward urgently with um, a, 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 whether it's through UK-EU discussions, whether it's through looking at a, a European pillar within NATO with an ability to act without the United States if necessary, whether it's through the European political community. I mean, I'm, I'm agnostic about all of that. Frankly, whatever works best um, uh, it, politically is, is, it seems to be sensible. But I think this work is urgent. I don't think that any capital in Europe has really thought through uh, what the contingency plan is of what Anand has described of the Trump cutting off uh, support to Ukraine, let alone Trump deciding to, uh, to, to, to downgrade or even end US support for NATO. I mean, the, I, think, I think one should underestimate the extent to which the American system, the agencies, the military, Pentagon, state, are still very committed 
to the transatlantic alliance and they will work as hard as they can to uh, stop Trump going down that route. But if he comes to office again, he won't have the likes of Rex Tillerson or H.R. McMaster around him. He will have people who are true MAGA believers, um, uh, who are apostles uh, of, of the Trump uh, gospel. And I think it's very hard to predict. We should be aware. We can be aware of the risk, the graph of the seriousness of the risk that we we face. And we have got to raise our game very dramatically. Um, and I don't think that any European power, and certainly not the EU collectively, no individual country, including the UK, is thinking with sufficient uh, sort of strategic reach and vision at the moment about what we now need to do. So let's ask a little bit about that. You know, what do we need to do? I mean, you have brought up the whole importance of lobbying and talking to Congress about, you know, why uh, supporting Europe um, is still um, in U.S. self-interest. But I think we have plenty of examples um, over the last 10 years or so of countries that do not act in their self-interest, ironically enough. So um, let's let's ask about that. What precisely should Europe do potentially without the U.S.? Um, to to actually uh, act here. We do know that Olaf Scholz, um, even just this week, said uh, he cautioned the public. He said um, that there is a chance that Trump comes back into office. And if he does, we are going to we are going to need to do more. We are going to have to put more skin in the game when it comes to Ukraine. Um, it'd be nice uh, if he acted as if he actually believed that. But that's another discussion. So uh, do we need to be having discussions on things like extended deterrence, for example, on um, other uh, ways of, of cooperating as Europeans, uh, especially with the UK and France, the two biggest military powers on the continent. What do you say to that? What is to be done? Yes. And Anetta, also, if you'd like to comment on that in light of extended deterrence, I mean, we know well that the, the debate in Germany on civil nuclear power is toxic enough, let alone the idea of a, uh, a German bomb or a European bomb. I mean, as long as you have the Greens in the coalition, if that coalition survives at all in Germany, <laughs> um, it will be very difficult to change anything about that. But I think it's not so much about the energy, uh, about the um, the nuclear deterrence, having it or ha not having it, or about the money that isn't there. It's it's mostly about really understanding the threat on a more than a rhetorical level. I mean, Angela Merkel made her point five years ago in that famous tent at the Munich Security Conference that Europe is now on, on its own. And nothing followed at all. And Scholz knows it and Macron knows it. And it's it's not happening. And I think Putin has made it more than clear that he won't stop with Ukraine. I mean, the, the project he has now is an imperialistic project. And he now has managed under the eyes of the West to build up a war economy. So other than Germany or Europe thought, Putin has managed, no matter what sanctions the West has been uh, sort of um, put up uh, to to deal very well financially and to even sort of grow his own economy through this war. So he won't stop there. He will. Uh, and if you talk to people in Warsaw, for example, I used to be the foreign correspondent in Warsaw and I'm still in contact with a lot of my friends there. They're really worried about potentially being next. So Europe and, and the Baltic states, the same if you go to Estonia or Lithuania. They know they're in... Um, pretty much imminent danger if uh, Putin succeeds in Ukraine. So I don't really, I mean, honestly, I'm a bit in despair because I don't really know what else should happen for Europe to wake up and do something. And Anand is right. I mean, there are lead times to this, to, to really 
do something takes a long time because you have to coordinate the different military products as well. I mean, you cannot have France building fighter jets, fighter jets number one, and then Germany has other ones. And this is very complicated and needs a long time planning ahead. And this isn't, I can't see this really happening. And I'm really a bit worried that, um, yeah, people will sit there like uh, rabbits in front of the famous headlights and um, things are moving on. There are the examples. They're not perfect, but they're, they're practical. The UK-France bilateral treaties, so Saint-Malo and then Lancaster House. Um, and those to provide a, a, a framework on specific areas of military defence cooperation. Um, I don't think they, they, they you know, sadly, not been taken as far as they, they, they might have done. But there's sort of a, a, a modest template there that Europeans, I mean, including the UK, collectively could draw upon. And you need that sort of treaty arrangement to set the framework so everybody knows the direction in which they're committed to move. And then there's got to be linked to that some sort of um, agreement on collaborative procurement, um, because the defence industries will put in the money and the investment, provided that they are guaranteed uh, a customer base for you know, 10 years or more. Um, but not if you say, well, we want this for the next two years, but we can't give you any promises beyond that. Indeed, David, that's, and uh, having left it so late is a bit of a problem. And this coming in Germany from a country um, which famously was described as doing it better by John Kampfner at some point, who is also his new book, I'd recommend highly in search of Berlin. But Germ the Germans do it better. Presumably to cooperate more, we need to actually know a little bit more as well as to care about uh, relations with each other. Do Brits know and care about Germany? We don't talk about Germany enough, I don't think, in the UK. Uh, I think in general, we don't talk about European countries enough. But I do think one interesting thing that has happened over the course of the last few years is, however indirectly, the British public has come to recognise the impact the outside world has on our politics and our economy, whether that's the inflation following the war in Ukraine, whether that's the pandemic, whether that's the sort of pain of negotiating Brexit. And I think there is a greater awareness in this country now about the fact that it's harder to separate the international from the domestic. And I think that is progress. Uh, it's, a, it's a very small step. Uh, but I always think one of the problems with foreign policy, I mean, one of the things we need to do across the West, I think, is in a sense democratise foreign policy, to have public debates about foreign policy. Because I think the lack of awareness about foreign policy issues across the Western world is one of the reasons why, well, it's one of the reasons why populists can do so well, one of the reasons why we head for simple solutions, and one of the reasons why we don't actually get the public support we probably need for the kinds of international initiatives that will keep us all safe. Indeed, and that's part of the mission of Berlin Side Out, and one that I know, David, resonates with your thinking on this too. I think the, the upside, I would say, is, is that the British public has an overwhelmingly positive view of Germany. You look at any opinion poll about which countries people trust, which countries people have a high regard for, Germany comes pretty near the top of the heap any time. And stuff that I can remember in my lifetime, you know, which, which, you know, uh, sort of related back to World War II, that's largely gone. Even England-Germany football matches are now played without the same sort of nationalist um, elements that used to be the case. You know, that, that it, it's... Well, that's because Germany's best footballer is an Englishman. <laughs> 
that, that is as was demonstrated last night. But I mean, that that um, that certainly has helped. And and that one of the most successful UK football managers is German. Um, but uh, the, uh, I I think that the um, it, it, you know so that that's a, on the good side. I think one of the things that and also more Brits, more Brits not enough have been going on holiday to Germany. And a lot of Germans still come here to study and to uh, do the tourist uh, 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 sites. But having said that, um, there's not enough contact. There's not enough understanding. I think that the uh, at government level, it's really important that we try to establish new fora and, and structures for conversations between politicians and officials. Um, now that the habit of meeting week by week in Brussels uh, for various European Council configurations are no longer there, just the absence of those, I think, has diminished mutual understanding of each other and an understanding of common interest. And that, I think, is where I'd like to see immediate political effort go. Yes. And I mean, initiatives, obviously, like like Koenigsvinter, like Ditchley, and also the action group Titan Vendor that we run at DGAP, try and play some some role in that as well. But Anetta, we have moved on from 1996. We've moved on from Achtung Surrender headlines with Stuart Pearce in a uh, in a British war helmet. Um, but as a German in the UK, do you do you think the Brits uh, know and care about Germany? I do think that they generally have a positive image of Germany that sort of borders on sentimentality sometimes. No offense to John Kampfner, but uh, I don't think the Germans do it better. What I do fear at the moment is that there is less and less contact, especially between the young people. I mean, you have school trips uh, having gone down 75% uh, over the last year since Brexit. Uh, students who come from Germany to Britain, uh, Britain was a hugely popular destination, has got, have gone down the number 60%. So I think this is something that I'm really worried about, that there will be less and less mutual understanding because there's less and less knowledge. Uh, very, very few Brits are still learning German, which also has to do with Brexit, obviously, because there's no chance to live and study or work there anymore if you don't have a visa. So um, I'm, I'm a bit worried about that because I think there is some, has some kind of alienation set in, especially amongst the younger generation. And I'd very much like to see that uh, changed by a Labour government. Maybe, I mean, there has been a a bilateral agreement with France now to make it easier for school trips. I think these things are look so small at first sight, but I think this is really important and I'd very much like to have that for Germany too. Thanks very much to our guests, David Liddington, Anand Menon, and Annette Dittert for joining us from London there. But what kinds of chatter do we hear in Berlin about this important relationship? We're now going to hear from Dr. Jens Zimmermann. He is a member of the German Bundestag with the Social Democrats, the same party as Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and he chairs the German-British friendship group in the Bundestag. We started by asking him what priority areas Germany has and should have in its relationship with the UK, especially in a post-Brexit, post-February 2022 Europe. First question, uh, when we think of uh, British-German relations over the last uh, number of years, uh, we go from the acrimony around Brexit to the realization of the necessity for continued relations with the UK, particularly around security cooperation, especially given uh, the context of Ukraine. So um, can you help us understand from your perspective, what are the most important bits of the German-UK um, relationship at the moment? Uh, how, Why is it still important that Germany maintains good relationships with the UK? And 
very concretely, uh, what sort of areas of cooperation do you think are the biggest priority, particularly when it comes to the issue of security going forward? Yeah, security is definitely one of the, the main areas of uh, potential cooperation. There is definitely room for improvement there. Um, we don't have too many joint German-British operations, but I think uh, there is a huge potential for more cooperation, thinking about the NATO forward presence in the Baltics, for example, um, joint uh, maneuvers, stuff like that. I think this is a, a huge area for uh, more cooperation. Um, nevertheless, um, I think um, the potential is not uh, used to its full uh, extent yet, and I'm I'm really I'm really sad because what we see is Richie Sunak never made it to Berlin to have a proper meeting with Olaf Scholz, and um, this creates a lot of question marks in the Chancellery uh, in Berlin because it it does we we don't feel uh, very valued uh, from the current. Uh, Prime Minister, I'm sorry to be so blunt, but uh, he's now quite for some time in office and it's not like uh, he, he must go to Australia or something like that. This is really, you can uh, be here for breakfast and be at home for uh, lunch. We have mainly junior ministers coming to Berlin, uh, a lot of reshuffles, and um, this is really uh, not very helpful for the bilateral relations. From a German perspective, I think there is a lot of uh, uh, a lot of talks also about energy. So um, we definitely want to have a, an energy partnership with the UK. Um, we have the agreement signed on the Neuconnect uh, line between Wilhelmshaven and the UK, which is great. Um, we are extremely interested in cooperation on green hydrogen. There's a huge potential there. Um, and uh, in addition to that, I think we also see that we can do a lot together in all the fields of digital. Um, the recent AI summit uh, was welcomed by the German government. I think it was a good idea. It had, and that's, I think, very interesting. Um, an initiative by the British government had um, an influence on the final negotiations of the AI Act. So this shows that even from outside the European Union, uh, you can have uh, some influence. Indeed, Rishi Sunak has not been to Berlin, but Olaf Scholz hasn't been to London for a while either. Is Britain actually a priority for this German government? So if you look um, into the chancellery, it's Olaf Scholz, it's uh, Wolfgang Schmidt, who is uh, the chief of staff running the show. And these are probably the most, the two most Anglophile uh, um, leaders of our country for uh, the last decade. So um, it is really difficult to not make something out of that. Olaf Scholz made his visit to uh, the UK when he became chancellor. And it's definitely not Scholz's fault that since he took office, uh, there had been some changes to the British government. And uh, so it's, uh, it's uh, according to protocol and tradition, it would be Richie Sunak's turn um, to come to Berlin. And I was very happy meeting 
King Charles this year. This was a great sign of uh, British-German unity. I know I, I was at the state banquet and I know how happy um, His Majesty was um, for, for this uh, great uh, state visit to Germany. But at the end of the day, um, it is something different uh, if the prime minister isn't coming. I know it is very difficult times in the House of Parliament and within his uh, government, but it is a sign he made the trip to France. Um, the UK signed an agreement with France uh, and uh, I was also very, it was also very interesting to me to learn that French students will be now able to go on uh, without a passport um, to visit to the UK if they're going in a group. This is something we are asking for for months. Um, we weren't hurt uh, in London and now we see that a deal like that has been achieved between France and the UK. It's great to see that uh, the French English relations are good, that is very important, but it's also, I mean, it's also a sign not coming to Berlin, Germany being uh, in, the, in the waiting line, and I'm not completely sure if this is really the place we want to be. It's not the Germans that bring up Brexit all the time. It's, uh, it's something we accept, we see as a done deal. We want to look into the future. I think that was important to emphasize the protocol aspect of that. One other thing that strikes me, you mentioned this mutual cultural appreciation and uh, affection for the two countries that came out at the visit of King Charles, who even mentioned Kraftwerk in his speech in the Bundestag, which was quite, uh, quite something. Um, but translating that into serious policy cooperation doesn't really seem to be a priority for either side, to be honest, at the moment. As you mentioned, the UK talking with France, but also there's a feeling in London um, that from people we talk to that there's not a serious effort in Germany to actually move forward on security, that the Zeitenwender isn't delivering all that it could, and so that Germany's not really seen as the kind of serious partner in that regard that it could be. Now, perhaps that's going to change, as you mentioned, looking into the future, when there's a new Labour government coming in that certainly wants to do more. But what, what are the obstacles on the German side to more cooperation? And then how do you see that cooperation with Labour in the future? I don't see these obstacles and simply doing some number crunching um, we, we used to say the U.S. is the largest donor of weapons uh, and support to Ukraine. And then we have Germany and the U.K. If I look into the numbers right now, it's the U.S., it's Germany, and then far, far away, it's the U.K. So um, I, don't, I don't buy uh, this chat uh, from London. This seems to me an attempt uh, to let the view of people uh, go into other directions and not uh, onto the direction at home in the UK, because it is a fact that unfortunately, um, the support, the financial support of the UK for Ukraine is now falling far behind uh, the German support. So I, I don't think it's fair and I don't think it's accurate uh, now to do finger pointing in our direction, um, even though we are struggling also with our budget in Germany, there was one thing clear between all parties in the Bundestag that our support for Ukraine will be strong. And um, I think this is something where we would welcome uh, to see the UK with a similar support. 
and um, at the end of the day, um, having the 100 billion additional fund for the German armed forces, I haven't seen something similar for the British armed forces. But nevertheless, it is still not enough um, seeing the threat from Russia. So this is exactly where the conversation should start, because um, sharing and pooling uh, within NATO is, from my perspective, still a good idea. And I would definitely welcome uh, seeing much, much more of that. And also would love to see much more attempts uh, to do that on a bilateral level. And this is uh, where I'm quite confident if um, a Labour government uh, would be in office uh, next year because we have, um, this was between uh, our two sister parties, um, together with the shadow defence secretary, John Healy, um, we created a defence paper. So we have um, a paper on the table. Uh, Labour would be able to start uh, to intensify the, co the cooperation between the UK and Germany on day one. This is something which makes me very confident. Uh, but still, I would love to see something like that uh, also uh, today. One thing that I'd like to follow up a little bit on Ukraine in particular, um, because you mentioned the difference between the absolute amount that Germany is giving versus the absolute amount that uh, the UK is giving in terms of military and financial assistance. Um, and I think, I think you're right to point that out. But at the same time, we also see that the UK has a knack for delivering uh, certain things when they're needed at the right time um, and very, very quickly. Uh, you know, and we co are constantly, we're still having debates about tourist deliveries um, in, uh, in Germany long after the UK has delivered Storm Shadow. So is there something that e each, uh, that we can learn from each other? I don't think that narrative of too little too late is really precise because at the end of the day, what we've seen is that the Ukrainian offensive failed. And all the people telling it needs uh, German main battle tanks uh, to have a successful offensive, nobody is uh, coming back to that conversation because ultimately um, on the battlefield, we've seen that that wasn't the case. And um, the debate in Germany, um, many, many of us are very... Um, fed off that debate because it was always looking back the last 24 months it was always we need this weapon we need that weapon and if that weapon will ultimately be delivered then they will be the decisive victory i don't buy that number because on the battlefield it proved from my perspective wrong um and um at the end of the day there's also one big difference between the uk and germany germany is uh, no nuclear power. So um, we look at certain aspects of that conflict may be a bit different. You might, you might say um, Olaf Scholz is over cautious there. That might, might be true, um, but I, I think um, it is the right decision uh, to, to have a balanced approach there. And still, um, if, you, if you have seen what um, President Zelensky um, wrote on X uh, this week uh, about the German support, um, I think this 
is a very, very clear message. And it was uh, very, very welcomed in Germany that Zelensky was so outspoken about the German support. Yes, it's an interesting part of the debate in Germany, this Wunderwaffe tendency. And it's something that Wolfgang Schmidt, who you mentioned earlier, has come into. But I think the, the argument from a lot of the military experts is all these things are one component of what Ukraine needs to achieve the kind of battlefield dominance that would see a breakthrough. And of course, they were conducting the offensive without air power, which is not something that NATO would uh, would have done. The, the point that you raised, though, about being the UK being a nuclear power is extremely important in this context, because support for Ukraine is one aspect of the security transformation. But a lot of military experts in particular are pointing to Germany's capabilities and saying, well, if the situation doesn't go well in Ukraine and Russia feels emboldened, then Germany as a non-nuclear power is actually quite vulnerable, particularly if the situation in the US deteriorates with the Trump uh, administration or Trump too. Given that's the case and that Olaf Scholz has been so worried about escalation and about that threat, why aren't we seeing a quicker, more sustained military buildup in Germany itself of its own armed forces? I think the build-up in Germany um, has increased uh, massively. Um, we, we see that um, there needs to be the industrial capacity for that, but uh, seeing what uh, about uh, munition, uh, artillery shells, uh, we build up a production line for the anti-aircraft munition um, and um, talking to my friends in the Ministry of Defense uh, about procurement. So this will be very, very merry, merry, merry Christmas for the German defense industry because the contracts they have under the Christmas tree, they are really, really massive. And we made together with the um, decision of that Sondervermögen of the 100 billion, we also made a decision to procure the F-35, which ultimately says we will continue being part of the nuclear sharing club within NATO. I completely agree. This is all about U.S. nukes. And if uh, there would be a dr dramatic change in the White House, that would, be, would, would open additional questions. But what I can say is procurement is, has been ramped up massively. A lot of the material, uh, the heavy armor we will need is simply not available off the shelf. But uh, seeing uh, what we are procuring right now, and this was one of the main issues because our procurement processes were simply not fast enough. So, but I think the orders we have now there, they, uh, we will see starting next year um, a drastic change uh, within the uh, German armed forces. And finally, Boris Pistorius, our defense secretary, he is committed of having uh, a full battalion of German troops permanently stationed uh, in the Baltics. This is a huge commitment to our NATO forward presence. Um, and this shows that he's also confident that we will have uh, the sufficient uh, armament for that. One thing I'm hearing a little bit in your answer here with respect to if we look at um, what might happen in the US is that there's calculations in on the battlefield in Ukraine in terms of what Germany, you know, does there and its strategy there, because 
um, it's not a nuclear power. It doesn't have that ultimate assurance and therefore there's a more cautious approach. But is this not a conversation that we should also be having with our British partners? If we're more concerned about uh, what happens next year uh, in, in the US and we're building up conventionally, should we also as, as a part of that readiness be talking to our British partners and also our French ones about uh, about the nuclear question. I think that would definitely be an area to uh, investigate what can be done. But um, f for, for having this really, really serious conversation, uh, you need some trust and you need uh, to build up relationships. And there I'm coming back to what I said earlier, that it is quite sad that there is simply no relationship right now um, between Olaf Scholz and Richie Sunak, which is uh, uh, very sad. And unfortunately, I know Annalena Baerbock uh, and Cleverly, they had a, a good working relation. So, and now it's David Cameron back. I mean, he's a, I think he's a very experienced politician, so no question about that. But you need to build relations. And having a, a serious conversation like that, you need some uh, earlier steps to that, but still, I'm 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 quite optimistic that uh, uh, we will see um, improvements uh, on the joint German-British efforts. There, the potential is there, and I can definitely say um, from a German side, we're absolutely willing. So there is uh, no bitter taste of Brexit uh, at the floors of the Bundestag. It's it's really the opposite because the, the cool thing is we don't have to deal with it every day. Um, and uh, um, so so there is really um, the, the, the door is wide open uh, for that. And I would be really, really happy if the British um, use that open door. Yes, absolutely. And it seems as though there's scope for this in, in all sorts of Germany's relationships, to, to be honest, with uh, with friendly countries such as Canada, which we discussed on another episode of the podcast, which is a, a relationship with a friendly country, values are shared, yet the potential of that relationship is not fully explored. And it seems to be the same with the, with the UK. So it's all to win with an incoming government. So just to, to push this to you for one last point, how does Germany be the one to reach out? How does Germany see, see the smile in the other's eyes first and say, come on guys, this is what we need to do together? So if I look at um, the frequent flyer card of Olaf Scholz, um, this is really crazy because if you see he traveled uh, the world uh, this year, probably more than any other head of state um, and yes, um, maybe he didn't went to all the uh, um, allied countries to the obvious places, but he went to many um, important places to all of us. He went uh, to a lot of uh, southern um, Asian countries. He went to South uh, America, to Brazil. Um, he went uh, to many African countries simply because this is where the decisions uh, uh, will be made in the future if it comes to uh, future allies. And it's, I mean, we are, we're talking a lot about Russia here, but it's ultimately it's also about China. And China is everywhere. So it is crucial that we um, maintain and create uh, good relationships with all these countries of the global south. 
Um, for example, we have, even though it's not the easiest partner, but we have a great relations with Brazil, for example. Brazil is such an important and such a big country. And um, so it was former, um, former president of the European Parliament, um, uh, Martin Schulz, who visited Lula when he was in jail. And now we are really trying to uh, also to capitalize on that very good relation. And I, I recently went to Australia. I, th I think we improved our relations with Australia dramatically um, because uh, we created a lot of bilateral uh, programs there. And uh, Germany is very active um, on the international stage. But I think it is really a mutual interest um, to bring as many countries as possible into um, the block of democratic states, because this is where Russia and China is trying to um, bring these countries into, into their camp and try to make the case for the authoritarian uh, Absolutely. And that's certainly, as you say, a shared interest. Working out the division of labor, working out how we can each best contribute is a task of statesmanship that lies ahead. And hopefully that will indeed improve. Thanks very much to Dr. Jens Zimmerman for joining us there. Ben, one common thread that particularly struck me in both of our conversations this week was anticipation for the next British election. This sense that the ruling Tories are the problem and once they're gone, this relationship might get better. So let's see what happens in the next year with the upcoming election. That seems to be a sentiment we hear a lot. Uh, of course, in less than two years, we have a German election as well, one that will probably see the current centre-left coalition led by Olaf Scholz ousted and a more conservative-leaning one taking power. So there is also some um, optimism that maybe policy might change in Germany and the UK um, it, it for a better relationship, but that's a bit of a time to wait when time is of the essence on everything from uh, Donald Trump potentially getting another uh, White House term to, of course, a situation uh, in Ukraine, which, as you pointed out at the beginning of the episode, is dire. Is this really the right approach? And the other thing that I'd like to ask you about here is we're hearing a lot of chatter, and I think you probably have a little bit more insight from uh, Vilnius, having just been there, um, of how short our time window really actually is in terms of being able to arm ourselves against Russian aggression. Um, how many years do we actually have to do that realistically? Thanks, Aaron. Uh, no, it's not the right approach. Uh, I mean, they say, you know, weeks a long time in politics and a year is an eternity. So, I mean, there's, we're a long way out from those elections and a lot of things can happen in between. So we don't know how the cards are going to fall at the time the election is called in either the UK or Germany. So wishing for the coalitions that we might want in terms of what they would do for Ukraine, what they would do for geopolitics and so on is all very well. But we have to really cross that bridge when we come to it. And certainly no allies can rely on getting the result they want at that time. Whereas what they should be focusing on is getting it right now, because you're dead right, this is extremely urgent. And I'd, I'd recommend um, people to read two pieces that were recently published in Foreign Affairs, the, uh, the, the magazine. Um, one from Jack Watling, who's a UK analyst based at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, which talks very clearly about what we need to do in 24 in order to set the scene for Ukraine to win in 25. And this is in effect a move to um, what uh, Mikola Bieleskov, another analyst, has called the move to active defense. And that means 
giving the Ukrainians what they need to not be pushed back by the Russians and to ensure there is no collapse this year. That will buy them the time to properly train for large-scale combined arms offensive warfare. They need at least a half year to do that, we would think. We also need to give them more kit to actually be able to do that. If we don't do that in 2024, we're not going to win in 2025. What Putin is counting on is outlasting us. He's counting on getting to the US elections at least and seeing what happens then. Banking on thinking he might have a more favorable negotiating condition uh, to make a deal effectively with Donald Trump over the head of the Ukrainians. Now, that's extremely worrying for Europeans for many reasons, as is the return of Trump. As one uh, participant in the Vilnius um, meeting put it, uh, Donald Trump could undermine the NATO security guarantee with a tweet. Why? Because although we deal with the United States as a country, although Congress is extremely favorable to NATO and we deal with the U.S. institutions as well as just the president, what is a key part of Article 5 is that it's up to each country to decide how it responds to an attack on one, which is treated as an attack on all. Now, if the president of the United States does not want to respond in fullness with the full strength of their military power, that implies a very different security guarantee than if he does. So we have to bear that in mind. Now, Europeans have to get that right this year for Ukraine. And let me just say what we think our time frame is for getting it also right for ourselves. The best estimates from most of the eastern flank countries are two to three years after the end of hostilities in Ukraine. Now, there's been a longer estimate here in Germany by my, my colleague Christian Merling and Torben Schutz, who put it from six to ten years. By ensuring we're prepared for the worst case scenario, we will definitely be prepared for the better scenarios that could unfold the longer time frames. What does that imply? It means we need to get our industry into working order now and we need to start placing large orders and getting extra shifts running, getting extra industrial capacity installed because we are lacking in most of the key warfighting capabilities that we would need to deter Russia and make sure we don't have to fight that war. The other aspect of this is we have to demonstrate our resolve and we have to demonstrate it extremely clearly because this is where Russia is very good at exploiting our weaknesses. And this was always a fear in the Cold War that the Soviets would win without a shot being fired because we'd go politically soft. Would, for example, Western European countries truly come to help countries in the Baltic states where they put under attack? If Putin doesn't believe they will, then there is every incentive for him to attack a NATO country, especially if the nuclear extended deterrence guarantee is not 100% certain. So unless we step up in two ways, by manifestly, quickly and clearly demonstrating our resolve and by building the capabilities to underpin it, we're going to face a much, much worse situation in a few years than we're facing now. We still have the time, we can still act, but we need to do it this year. And I'm glad that you brought a couple of those points up and I'll add a few things. I mean, we've heard from a number of analysts, um, firstly, uh, Anne Applebaum, um, but also a few others who have made the argument uh, that uh, Trump does not need to leave NATO in order to seriously weaken it. And even if uh, even if Congress, as they have done, have tried to sort of hamstring Donald Trump by passing various measures to essentially prohibit him from just unilaterally leaving NATO without congressional approval. Uh, you are right to point out, of course, that um, military response still really is the White House and the president's um, prerogative. So even if he doesn't 
um, leave the institution, how he actually acts within that institution is still um, his choice as president. And that's something that I don't think is appropriately appreciated um, in Europe. And that's why I think you and I would both agree that it's really, really, really important to have this particular discussion, especially on UK uh, German relations to security players in Europe to be able to uh, prepare for that eventuality. And we are going to hear a little bit more from Edward Stringer in our next episode about precisely how we do that. And he is going to talk about, um, as you've mentioned, the uh, industrial base um, and what needs to be done there to basically get us in shape for that kind of thing. We look forward to that. And the, those two articles that you mentioned just now, just uh, listeners, those will be in our show notes. So do have a have a look out for those, obviously. That's right, as will a link to an article which has an interview with Thierry Breton, the European Commissioner, who recently spilled the beans on a meeting uh, between himself, Ursula von der Leyen, Phil Hogan, former, former Irish uh, European Commissioner, and Donald Trump uh, a few years ago, where he very clearly said, if Europe is attacked, we are not coming to help you. Now, if that's not a wake-up call to us, then I don't know what is. I mean, Ukraine itself, the, the full-scale invasion should have been the wake-up call we needed. But we're not. We're still sleepwalking towards what could be a disaster for the European continent. And that other article in Foreign Affairs that I, I didn't actually name-check before was by Norbert Rutgen, the former chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Bundestag, who talks about exactly that danger about the fact if we don't stop this in Ukraine, we risk a wider war across Europe. And that's something that Germans, Brits, and the rest of us need to consider more carefully. I would like to end our first episode of 2024 of Berlin Side Out on a slightly happier note, though. I mean, there's a lot of pessimism that we've had, and I think for um, appropriate reason. Uh, however, um, there is something else that happened in Vilnius as well. Our uh, Ben Talis was awarded with the a diplomatic uh, star from uh, Lithuanian Foreign Minister Gabrielis Landsbergis uh, for his engagement on exactly these issues. Um, so congratulations, Ben, uh, from me, from the rest of the Berlin Side Out team, and I'm sure from all of our listeners. How did it feel standing up there? It was a true honor, Aaron. It was an amazing moment. It's one of those things that is both incredibly humbling and makes you really proud at the same time. And this Medal of Honor of the Lithuanian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the star of Lithuanian diplomacy, uh, which is the medal that they awarded to the, the Lithuanian state awarded to John McCain uh, back in the day, who was obviously a great friend of, of uh, the Baltics and of European security. It was a really incredible experience. And to know that that was for the work on neo-idealism, to know it was for the work on un spreading the kind of security analysis that is common in, in Vilnius, and for the work we do on the Titan vendor. So exactly the kind of topics that are covered by Berlin Side Out was a, a real honor. And to have received so many warm congratulations from Berlin Side Out listeners, friends and colleagues around the world was a, was a true joy as well on top of that. So I'd, I'd like to repeat my opening lines of my acceptance speech in Vilnius where I said in Lithuanian, Achu, tai tikra gerbea, which means thank you. It's a real honor. And it it truly is. So Aaron, thanks for bringing that up. I appreciate it. Well, fabulous. And con congratulations again. So uh, with that, um, with that congratulatory note, that is all for our first episode of Berlin Side Out in 2024. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, thank you as always to our project assistant, Julian Stuckler, and our technical producer, Henrik Vanna. Uh, you can find out more about our guests in the show notes. We we'll hope you'll join us for part two of our UK episode where we interview retired RAF Air Marshal Edward Stringer about the defense and security aspects of the German-UK relationship in the future. Uh, before we jump across the pond for our look at Germany's ties to both Canada and the US. For now, though, until next time, 
from Berlin. Auf Wiedersehen. Cheerio and tschüss. Toodle pip.